Well, there are certain attributes that belong to God alone. Uh, the omnis are his. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's Lord of all. He is sovereign. He's everywhere at the same time. He's unchanging. These attributes are called the non-moral, that is not like human uh, attributes, the non-moral or incommunicable attributes. He doesn't communicate those to us. But there are others that are called communicable and moral attributes, and he expects to see those in his children. He says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, and also in 1 Peter 1, 16, Be ye holy, because I am holy. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, 12, Love one another as I have loved you. And so there are certain qualities that he wants to see in us that reflected uh, his his characteristics, his attributes reflected in his creation. Um, the one that we're looking at today is faithfulness. The title of the message is Reflecting God's Faithfulness. Your bulletin verse, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So please open your Bibles to James chapter 1 this morning. Last Sunday we looked at the first 16 verses of this chapter, some in the morning, some in the evening, and we learned how to make sure that we are prepared for the trials and temptations that we'll face in the coming new year. And I also want to continue now through the, 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 the chapter in James, and I believe the Lord would have us look at the book of James on Sunday mornings uh, James is a wonderful book. It's very practical. It takes us out of church and puts us in our workplace and says you're still to live like you do at church out here. It's faith in shoe leather. Um, and the rest of the chapter then has to do with God's faithfulness and the faithfulness to be, uh, that is to be found in us. So two basic points to the outline today. A faithful God and a faithful life. A faithful God is seen in verses 17 through 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's faithfulness is seen in his generosity in giving and also in the gifts that he gives. The word gift is used two times at the beginning of verse 17. The two words come from the same root, but they're different words in the original language. Uh, the meter of this passage forms a beautiful poem, and some think it might have been a hymn that reminded the early believers of God's faithfulness. The first, every good gift, is a dosis, and it has the idea, it is the act of giving. It's used in a verbal sense. God is, is generous as he gives. The next, every perfect gift, that's dorema, that's a noun, a word that, that describes the gift itself. So the act of giving and the gift itself is what he's talking about. They, they show us that God is faithful. All through the Bible, we see how generous God is in supplying our needs. He supplied our greatest need when he sent his own son to die on Calvary's cross. And John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave. The son was the gift. 
that God gave man. The Holy Spirit supplies us with gifts that are to be used to edify others in the church. The Holy Spirit also himself is the gift that God gave to every believer at salvation. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you now. Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that love the, to them that ask Him? So the Holy Spirit Himself is the gift. God also continues to to give us so that we have nothing that we're lacking in our spiritual walk with Christ. Philippians four nineteen talks about our material needs. For my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. And Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. This topic fits well with what James has just written in the first half of, the, of chapter 1. Uh, he's written about trials and temptations. When you face trials, God is the one who's faithful in providing grace for every trial that you face. We saw that last Sunday morning. And those difficulties are part of these good gifts that God gives to us. You say, I don't know if a trial is a great gift. It is if we respond correctly, remember? Uh, so that when our faith is tried, we'll have patience, and, and that patience will have a maturing work in our lives. We'll lack nothing. When temptations to do evil come our way, we, talked, we looked at that last Sunday night, we can be sure that God is never the one who allows that temptation to come to, to cause us to sin. That, that is not a, a good gift from him. It is a temptation that appeals to our own desires, and our own desires are what causes us to sin, not the temptation. We also see in the text that everything God gives is good and perfect. The word good in, in this context is agathos. It's something that is useful, something that is beneficial, something that you are glad that you received. So that means whatever God gives is useful, it is beneficial, it is helpful, it is a good gift. Also, everything he gives is perfect. That's the word teleos, it's complete. It's able to meet the need that you have. If you think about uh, coming through the Christmas season, I'm sure there are gifts that you think back on that you gave that weren't necessarily the best gift that a person would want. Uh, we thought, this is what they want, or at least this is what I think they should have because I like this gift. And we end up by saying something like, well, it's the thought that counts. And by the way, I got it at Home Depot, and you can take it back. Uh, God gives perfect gifts. He, he never gives you what you don't need. And if he gives you something and you say, I'm not sure I need it, you better keep it. Don't return it because you will need it. He knows what you need. And since he gives perfectly, don't try to find satisfaction in the things that you think that you would rather have. The one who made you will satisfy your heart with his good and perfect gifts. Notice these gifts are from above. We often think uh, when, when someone looks up and says, thank you, Lord, you know, they're looking up toward heaven. We generally think of that as a place where, where God dwells. We know he's omnipresent, but, but we, we think that it's in the direction of up. It's an upward look. And so these gifts are coming from above. They're coming from God. He's the one who, when you do look up, you, you see the vast spaces of the universe. 
And you're reminded that he's created everything. He owns everything. He has all the resources to supply that exact gift that he wants you to have. The concept is what moved Annie Johnson Flint to write the, the words to the hymn, He Giveth More Grace. In the chorus, his love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary known unto man, for out of his, the, the infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. How can you look back at the gifts God has given you and doubt that he has been faithful? How can you look forward to what's tomorrow, the unknown to us, and doubt that he will be faithful. His faithfulness is seen in how he gives and in what he gives. His faithfulness is also seen in his creative work. These gifts are coming down, notice, from the Father of lights. Here again we see how God gives generously. The verb tense indicates a continual action. God is continually pouring out on us these good and these perfect gifts. It never ends. He's provided all that we need spiritually, materially, emotionally in the past. And will he not showering you with his blessings? The name Father of Lights here refers to the fact that he created every light that's in the universe. As creator of the orderly universe, his faithfulness is seen in that creation, in his handiwork. David said in Psalm 8.3, When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? David also wrote in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the earth, showeth his handiwork. In fact, the text argues here in James that God is more faithful than the universe that he created. One day his handiwork will be rolled up like a garment. There's a wonderful passage in Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. What are the lights that we see that God made? Some are light in themselves in the flame and some of them are reflectors of that light so the the sun and the stars are the lights the moon and the planets are reflectors i mentioned the north star last week polaris 680 light years away and we think about the speed of light 186,000 miles per second and 671 miles per hour uh, but I think it, it helps me understand how distant that is. If Polaris were to explode and become a supernova and the light go out there, for 680 years we would still see that light. But God's light is eternal. His light will never go out. He's more brilliant than the stars. He's more steady than the... How, do, how, do we, how does he compare to these lights? Notice he's constant. Again, more dependable, more faithful than the lights that he created. His light never flickers, with whom is no variableness. Stars have their own temperatures. And the variance in that temperature, that thermal radiation, uh, classifies them as, as cold, the coolest to the hottest stars. The hottest stars are blue, and then white, and then yellow, and the coolest are red. 
Stars vary in magnitude or brightness. Stars differ from planets in the appearance because they seem to twinkle as you look through the the vast distances with the debris in space and the gases that are there. They appear to twinkle, whereas planets are close by and they don't. With God, there's no shadow of turning or shadow caused by turning. As the earth rotates on its axis, the sun casts shadows depending on the angle of the sunlight, and we can can watch that change on on a sundial. On occasion, the moon comes between the earth and the sun, causing a lunar eclipse. Shadows are caused by objects that block the obscurity uh, or block or obscure light. But nothing can block the radiance and the faithfulness of God because he's constant light. He's absolute light. He never changes. He's always the same. He's always good. He's always faithful. And you walk into his presence, and the brilliance is so bright that there are no objects that obscure that light. And from that text, Thomas Chisholm wrote the hymn that we sang this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. In verse 18, we see his faithfulness is seen in, in his gift of salvation. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. What's the source of that new birth? His own will. Man can never save himself. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Second Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing... Here again is his will, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The source of the new birth is his own will. What's the means of the the new birth? It's seen here as well. The word of truth. We're saved by means of the gospel message that's a part of God's word, his revelation to man. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so that means of the new birth is the word of truth. The result of the new birth, God's promise that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were the products of the field, the fruit or the grain that would be brought in, and it would be offered to the Lord as a first fruit offering. And in doing that, it showed that there was a trust that God would provide more. He promised that more would come. And here's the truth, then, of believers being a kind or a type of first fruits. When you are saved, you're a proof that God has the ability to save lost men and women. You're a trophy of his grace. And others look at you and say, you know, if he could do that to them, he could do it to others. There's more to follow. You're the first fruits. There are more that will believe and come to Christ. And so the result of the new birth is this promise of God that there will be more. Our salvation shows that God is faithful to his will, to his word, to his promise of a great harvest to follow. I'm so glad that God has revealed himself in his word as a faithful God, in his gifts, in the way that he gives them, in giving us exactly what we need. And now James turns to the believers and says, Because God is faithful, your lives ought to reflect that faithfulness. 
And so a faithful life in verses 19 through the end of the chapter. A faithful Christian gets along with others. Now, let's just skip this part, okay? Because we don't want to get... Verses 19 and 20, they're here in the scriptures. We're going to cover them, okay? Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Verses 19 and 21 start with that word, wherefore. Based on what has just been said, this is what you need to do. It's the only response to the recognition that God is faithful. A faithful God should be imitated by faithfulness in the lives of his children. In other words, let every man here leave no loopholes. No one is exempt. He's talking to the brethren. These are believers. But let every man. Here are three admonitions that we need to follow in order to get along with others. There are other passages in Scripture, but this is what James says in these two verses. First of all, every one of us is to be swift to hear. That is, that swift is ready or eager to listen. Do you listen to others? Or do you look over their shoulder pretending to be interested, looking in their direction and nodding your head, but you're really not interested? Or do you listen so that you can find a subtopic that you can insert yourself and talk about yourself for a while? Do you just shut the person out altogether by avoiding them? We're to be swift to hear. God uses others to help us understand his word, to help us know the needs that other people have. We're relational people. He's created us that way. We need to know what's going on so that we know how to pray for others. So are you listening to others? Are you listening to God? Are you swift and eager to hear what he has to say? Are you in a place to learn more about him? Are you eager to have that personal time with him in your word and in prayer? Are you willing to change your schedule to make listening to God a priority? One writer says, James' appeal is for believers to seize every opportunity to increase their exposure to Scripture, to take advantage of every privileged occasion to read God's Word or to hear it faithfully preached or taught. The sincere, eager desire for such learning is one of the surest marks of a true child of God. Next, he says, every one of us is to be slow to speak. That's the opposite of swift, which is eager or ready, We need to be reticent to speak. And maybe so others will have a chance to say something. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert writes, The need for this exhortation apparently arose out of the free and largely unstructured nature of the early Christian assemblies, permitting personal participation in and ready interaction with others in the service. He quotes a rabbi who says, All my days I have grown up among the wise, And I have found nothing better for men than silence. (laughs) Slow to speak. It can be applied to to speaking without thinking. Prepare before you say something. Thoughtless words can easily cause painful wounds. Everyone is to be slow to wrath. How easy do you get angry? We say, well, I count to ten. And for some people, that means just 
I have a little bit more space, and every number I get angrier and angrier until I finally explode. <laughs> Anger is one of Satan's most effective tools that destroys relationships that God wants us to have with others. The reason for this admonition is given in verse 20. Man's anger is directly opposed to the righteousness of God. We aren't allowing God's righteousness to be seen when we let anger get in the way. It worketh not the righteousness of God. That is, it doesn't produce God's righteousness. Proverbs 14.29 says, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Faithful Christians are also changed by the power of the word, verses 21 through 25. They lay aside the sins that pull them toward the world. Verse 21 starts, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. The verb lay apart is just lay aside. Um, it was used of Stephen taking off his coat, or uh, Saul, uh, watching the coats of those who took off the, uh, who, who stoned Stephen in Acts 7, uh, 58. They laid down their clothes. So it's laying it aside. It's in a form that shows that this is an event that should have already happened. We could read this, having put away filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, what should be laid aside Already, what should have been laid aside already, James says, lay apart all. You can't just say, I'm going to keep, I'm going to hold on to some of it, and I'll just jettison it as, as I see fit. Lay aside all filthiness. Filthiness is moral uncleanness, impurity, hidden sins that work to produce outward obedience or disobedience. One commentator calls this filthiness wax in the ear that keeps you from hearing what God has to say. He's still saying it, but you kind of blocked yourself from listening. Don't be content that you've made some progress. Lay aside all of this filthiness. And then all superfluity of naughtiness. That's not something that we generally think of. Those word terms are, are a little different. Superfluity just means an abundance. Naughtiness is a general word in the New Testament that speaks of, of badness, of wickedness. And so we're to lay aside all the abundance of evil. Having laid that aside, now, verse 21b, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. We're to receive the word of God with a, this attitude of meekness. When you, you come to the Bible, you come humbly saying, Lord... I'm ready, I'm willing to submit my life to your instructions. Bow to the one who breathed out the words for us to read and to obey. Why? Because it is able to save your souls. That is the word of God is speaking of. James uses in this section three analogies to help us understand the importance of the word of God and spending time in it. The Bible is first called the engrafted word. In horticulture, grafting is done to help a weaker branch of a tree survive by connecting it to a stronger branch, or they even graft trees into a stronger root system that are, are naturally weak systems. In medicine, cells are used to replace other damaged cells in skin grafts. It becomes part of the original host. That's the goal, that that graft will be accepted. 
What a great picture. Have, have you spent so much time in the word that it's just embedded in your life, that it's become part of you? The Bible is also compared to a mirror, verses 23 through 24. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. There's a warning here not to look into the mirror and go away without making corrections that you saw needed to be made. That smudge of dirt on your face. That clothing that was crooked or out of place. That parsley in your teeth. (laughs) You saw it. Do something about it before you leave. That's only natural, right? And so he's saying, don't ever read the Bible without seeing what needs to be corrected and making the correction or allowing God to make that correction in your life. Too often in our Bible reading, we just read through. It's just not even thinking. Well, I've got to get this. I've got to get to that point. I want that bookmark next year. But stop. Let it, let it ref, reflect in it. See what changes God needs to make in your life. And be willing to make those. The Bible is a mirror to a mirror. The Bible is also called the law of liberty in verse 25. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The law of liberty is perfect. Again, that word teleos, it's complete. It shows us just what the way things are. It doesn't bend. The law is stable. It's perfect. It's called the law of liberty. That is the law which gives liberty. God's law does not restrict us. It frees us. It frees us from the bondage of sin. And so God's word is a law. Notice the word looketh here. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. There are different words that are used in the New Testament for the word look. This one is paracupto. It means to bend, to lean over, to peer. It's used outside of the Bible in in non-biblical writings of a harp player who bends over to make sure that they get the right string to pluck on the harp. It's not a casual glance, is it? It's an intense, I've got to pick the right one. I love where it's used in John chapter 20 when John arrives at the empty tomb before Peter. He outran him, remember? And it says, he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying yet went not in. That's That's the description. Here's the dark tomb. And he's looking in. He's peering. It's a careful examination. It's an intense look. It's the kind of looking we need to do in our Bible study. That's what the passage is saying. Notice the promise. This man shall be blessed in his deed. The blessings of God don't come from an occasional glance into his scriptures. They come from a continuous, intense study to see what's there. Verses 26 through 27 to end the chapter. Faithful Christians have an authentic religion. If any man among you seem to be religious... And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. 
Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their, in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Verse 26 reveals that there is a religion that is vain. It is empty. It's ritualistic. It's meaningless. It's futile. People go through all these all these things that they think are religious actions, but there's nothing going on in the heart. If any man seem to be religious, it's, it's indicated by two things. Number one, there's no control of the tongue, yet bridleth not his tongue. We'll see more of that in James chapter 3. We looked at that last Wednesday night as well. It's, 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 there's no control of the tongue. The other indication, the distinguishing mark, it's masked by self-deception deceives his own self. You know, empty religion, you go through the practices and you start saying, well, you know what? I've done all this. I must be okay. And compared to others, I think I'm pretty good. I don't need to change. I'm doing fine. And James contrasts that empty religion with pure religion. Pure religion also has two distinguishing marks. It's visiting those who have faced loss. People who are lonely, orphans and widows. And secondly, it's to live a life unspotted by sins. A pure life. A life that keeps short accounts with sins that are going on. A thought, a word, an action. Say, Lord, I'm convicted about that. Forgive me. Help me with your strength to go on and not do that again. That's pure religion. This morning, do you know the God who is faithful? As you consider who he is and the fact that he he has been giving good gifts all along to you and he wants you to receive, if you don't know him, he wants you to receive that one gift that he's given that's greater than all other gifts, the gift of his own son who died in your place for your sins on the cross. Accept his gift today. Don't scorn him by refusing it. Trust Christ as your Savior. Accept his gift of eternal life. Christian, are you living a life that reflects the one who saved you? Is there a faithfulness that other people see in you and they see God? Do you go along, or do you get along with others by being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath? Is God's word changing your life? Do you have authentic religion? May God help us to be faithful as God is faithful. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you'll use it today as only your spirit will and can. And convict and comfort and encourage and make us more like our Savior. As we've spent time looking into the world, help us not to go away and forget what manner of man we are. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. And by your grace and through your forgiveness, wash ourselves and be clean so that we can reflect your faithfulness in the greatest way possible. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.